Amos chapter 4, Amos chapter 4, and uh, this afternoon we're going to look at the fourth chapter and prepare to meet your, or to, to prepare to meet God. Perhaps uh, some of you have memories enough to think back, clear back to the 1980s. Uh, you heard of uh, Ferdinand and Amelda Marcos. Remember them? Uh, they used their power uh, to amass a private wealth, uh, siphoning foreign aid, loans, and profits of domestic companies into secret Swiss bank accounts, probably at $20 million, uh, seems, or $20 billion, I should say, not million, billion. And, of course, you remember Mrs. Marcos liked shoes. Remember? Uh, she had a special section of the presidential palace comprising of five separate rooms which housed over 1,220 pairs of shoes. Um, she left behind 500 gowns and 300 undergarments. One was even bulletproof. Uh, Mrs. Marcus put the enjoyment of her feet above the empty bellies of the children of the country. And that, uh, they were looking to her for leadership, but she thought more about shoes than she did about their needs. And so we have kind of a rebuke here in Amos chapter 4 against the women of Israel. And so, number one, living in luxury. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan. What's kind? You know what that is? Cows, okay? So he's talking to the cows, right? Wrong. Ye kind of Bashan that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. And the Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks, and ye shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. Now verse 1 is talking about these overindulged women of Israel. He sarcastically links them to Pampered, sleek, well-fed, obviously well-watered cows, as one preacher put it. And in verse 1 here, he says, bring and let us drink, or bring me another drink. They were grazing in the rich uplands of Bashan, that's uh, near Galilee. And so these women had constant demand for comfort and luxury. They kept food and clothing from the poor. Uh, it took courage, I would say, for Amos to call wealthy women of Israel cows. Uh, this was also a breed known for strength and stubbornness. Usually, women are the final guardians of morals and standards. Uh, when it says masters here, he's talking about the husbands. That's a rare word for husbands. But it means Lord and Master. And so Amos scorned these husbands 
who were supposed to be masters, but in who reality were meekly obeyed like servants. And uh, talks about being oppressed and crushed. It kind of describes the threats and the physical harassments used to squeeze money from the helpless. And so the Lord has sworn by his holiness there in verse 2. That adds tremendous weight to the message that follows. And so if Israel continues in sin, certain consequences are inevitable. If you see in verse 2 there, uh, it talks about he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. A hook in the jaw or even the nose was used to drag them off into captivity. Now, today we don't take people off into captivity by putting a hook in their nose. But people do get hooked, don't they? They get hooked on drugs. They get hooked on a besetting sin. And these people were hooked for judgment. They're going to be dragged out of the land. And history shows us and tells us conquerors often led their captives off with a hook in their nose. Verse 3, in effect, God is saying, if you think because you're rich or because you're a ruler living in a palace that, is, that you're going to be spared, you're going to be, you're going to be wrong. And we read the historical record that when Assyria finally came and took them into captivity, the king was also taken, and the, that was true of the southern kingdom, taken into Babylonian captivity. And so we see them living in luxury, but God is going to judge them uh, for their ways. Notice, secondly, they were devoted to duty. Verse 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal, multiplying transgressions, and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven, and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord. You see, it wasn't just the women. You can be hard on the women there in, in the first part, but you know the whole nation had a problem. They were all involved in with uh, religiosity. Here was their token nod to God for delivering them from Egypt. I wonder sometimes about our devotion to God. Is it just kind of a token nod? Oh yeah, I, I love the Lord. Oh yeah, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. Notice he says, come. Now, that's really kind of a spoof of the priest's summons to the pilgrims. Now, the psalmist said, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I think we would see here that Amos is kind of using some bitter sarcasm as he invites them to come up to Bethel. Now, you remember, Bethel was one of the places where they worshipped the golden calf. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. The word Gilgal means circle or roll along. It was the first place to which Israel came after they crossed the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership, and it became a sacred place to them. Later, it became the center of idolatry. And here again, it is associated with idolatry. Amos is inviting them to 
quote, multiply transgression at Gilgal. That would be saying, come to church and sin. Think that would be a good thing to say? No. We have a problem with sin enough. We don't have to come to church to sin. Obviously, one goes to church for the very opposite reason. But I think Amos is using what we would call satire or taunting rebuke, ironic, ridiculous statement to get their attention. You know that sometimes it actually can be dangerous to go to church? I heard a news story and later read the story that going to church can make you fat. The story said, going to church may be good for a person's soul, but it's not beneficial for your waistline. Pastor, why would you say this after we just ate lunch? But this article said it's uh, U.S. researchers say Sunday worship can be bad for your health as burgers and chips. You suppose they heard about our fellowship dinners? I don't know, but listen, the devil and his cohorts go to church, you know. I think uh, they get up bright and early on Sunday morning, and wherever there's preaching, wherever there's teaching of God's word, they're going to try to wreck that work any way they can. And that's the reason why you ought to pray for the services of our church. That's why you ought to pray for me. Not because I'm special, but because I've got the responsibility of giving you the word of God. The devil's crowd doesn't need to be busy in the cults. He doesn't need to be busy in the liberal churches which deny the word of God. You see, those places are already his domain. And he wants to concentrate his efforts on places like this, where the word of God is preached. And he'll do anything he can to disrupt it. You know, when Jesus Christ was about to die and his enemies were plotting the details of his execution, he spent time in the upper room with his 12 disciples. And you would think that the most sacred spot in the world would be that place at that moment. You might expect the devil was busy with those who were plotting the death of Jesus. But you know where the devil was that evening? He was in the upper room. Now, he hadn't been invited, but he was there. Satan entered the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And he walked right into the upper room, right on the legs of Judas. That's how he got there. And listen, sometimes he walks into our so-called Bible-believing conservative churches on the legs of a a deacon or a Sunday school teacher uh, or another church member. Now, in the days of Amos... The people of Israel were coming to the place of worship in a very pious manner. That's what we're seeing here in in these few verses. Uh, If you go back to the book of Leviticus, you'll find they were offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. You'll find they used leaven in their offering since uh, in the scriptures leaven represents evil. Evil or wrong doctrine or evil living. And in the Levitical system, at the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the first fruits, the use of leaven was forbidden. However, at the Feast of the Pentecost, 
That was a meal offering to the Lord, which was to present two loaves of fine flour baked with leaven. Pentecost was to depict the empowering of the institution of the local church, and there has never been a church in which there hasn't been a little leaven. Every church, including our church, has a little leaven. And so for that reason, leaven was included in the offering at Pentecost. Leaven was used also in the Thanksgiving offering. Leviticus 7 and verse 12 gives the law of sacrifice of peace offerings. And this was Godward side of the offering. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ has made peace with God for us. Because it represents Christ, there's no leaven in the first offering. But in the New Testament, this is made clear in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, although the first offering represents Christ and contains no leaven, the second represents the manward side, the one who's bringing the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and it contains leaven, according to Leviticus 7. And so we can make this application, I believe, to our own lives. You and I can dedicate our lives to the Lord. And we cannot, in reality, completely present ourselves holy or perfect. Because, you know what? Every one of us contains a little leaven, don't we? Believe it or not, there's no one in this room that's perfect. Not even my wife. Now, she's the perfect one for me, but uh, every one of us has a little leaven. So we need to, as we talked about earlier today, present ourselves a living sacrifice to God as we are admonished in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But don't ever think you can present yourself perfect to God. If you're waiting for that time when you want to be perfect, i I got to be perfect before I can present myself to God. It'll never come. You'll be waiting your whole lifetime. Now here in the book of Amos, Amos again, we're saying, is sarcastically uh, inviting the people of Israel to come to Bethel and Gilgal to transgress. And it's very significant. He tells them to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Doesn't even mention the first unleavened part of the offering. Why is that? Because he, the people are totally removed from living for God. They're not living for God. The only thing they can do is offer evil to God. And of course, God will not accept them at all. And so this preacher, this country preacher, Amos, has a lot on the ball. He's an outstanding minister of the word of God. Now we need to understand he's not asking them to sin. He's not telling them to sin. But he's saying, when you come to Bethel and to Gilgal, you come to sin, not to worship God. Because in reality, that's what they were doing. Their worship was not worship that was honoring to God. And many times, when we come to church, we're not coming for the right reason. We're coming out of a sense of duty, or we think, well, that's what we are expected to do, but, you know, I'm not going to necessarily like it, and I'm not going to take care of my sin problem, my heart problem. How can we keep our worship from being 
an empty ritual. How can we come uh, to church and come for the right reason? Prayer, spiritual awareness, be free from distractions, have our hearts right, focus mentally, choose to worship. I wonder how many before coming to church pray and ask God about the condition of your heart. Are you bringing a clean heart to church? Are you bringing lips that will not speak hurt? Are you bringing a mind that is not thinking evil of another person? You know, our biggest problem, of course, is sin. And we can't just cover it up with church attendance or attending a, 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 a religious conference or seminar. Essentially, uh, we, have to con- that we have to have a confrontation with the Lord and get our relationship straightened out. And so he's talking about living in luxury, but devoted to duty. And then thirdly, deaf to discipline. Verse 6. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in your cities and want of bread in your places, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the piece whereupon it rained not withered, So two or three cities wandered into one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord? I have smitten you with the blasting and the mildew. When your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palm or worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord? I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt, Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses and I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Can you ever recall a time when you wandered away from God, what was it that brought you back? You know, God here, he's sending out warnings. And he says, yet you will not return. Yet you will not return. They would not listen. Yet you have not returned to me. That's a sad refrain. That's kind of like a, a, a song here. And the chorus says, yet you have not returned. God disciplines are to bring about restoration and true repentance. If God uses the method of repetition in regard to discipline, how can we use that same principle as parents? Well, discipline consistently for the goal of restoration. Don't say something's wrong one day and the next day let your kids get away with it. Do whatever we can to help them turn away from their errant ways. Have you ever been disciplined repeatedly? 
<laughs> uh, we won't ask you the, about your childhood. But you know, God uses means of discipline. Uh, he used famine, he used drought, he used crop disease, locusts, plagues, war, catastrophes, and people still weren't getting it. In verse 6, it talks about famine. Cleanness of teeth. You know what that's talking about? It's not the dentist and getting your teeth cleaned. They didn't have cleanness of teeth because God had given them a new toothpaste or a new mouthwash. The reason they had nothing to chew on, they had nothing to eat. That's why their teeth were clean. God had judged them with famine, but it had not awakened them for their spiritual condition. Even in this, they would not repent. In verse 7 and 8, we, it, we read there about drought. It is God who controls the rain. Now, some people think it's the weatherman or the meteorologist. Uh, they're only right 50% of the time, and they still get paid. But God withheld the rain three months before time of harvest, which was disastrous. And God also caused it to rain on one city and not another. God did this to show them that rainfall was not by chance, but by his sovereign will. The drought was so serious that people from one city had to go to another city to get water. And they would carry a little water home in a jug or a, a wineskin. And this should have turned them to God. But even this, they would not repent. In verse 9, it talks about crop disease, mildew and locusts. Their crops were blasted by the scorching east wind from the desert, and the mildew was excessive drought, not moisture. The palmer worm devoured them. That talks about the locust plague, which devoured what was left. And even to this, they would not repent. In verse 10, it talks about plagues and war. God took their best young men to die in war. As populations were crowded into the walled cities and assembled in the camps, there were contagious diseases that broke out and spread. He saw, talks about the stink of your camps. That was the stench of dead bodies from the pestilence and from the warfare. But even in this, they would not repent. Verse 11, there were local catastrophes. God overthrew some of the cities with fire. And even in this, they would not repent. So what words would you use to describe the judgments of the Lord brought on Israel? Would you say he was gracious? Well, we notice in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there's similarity between judgments here in this chapter and in that chapter. And they point being, the point being God's judgments aren't arbitrary, but they're spelled out the curses for disobedience and the blessings for obedience. And so Amos isn't announcing anything new. He's simply enforcing God's existing covenant. And they had met with God's disciplines, but now they're going to meet God himself and the more natural calamities, now he would come himself. And so we have meeting your maker, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, because I will do... This unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind, declareth unto man what is the, the thought that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. In verse 12, God does not tell them here what he's going to do. He says, I 
Thus I will do it unto thee, because I will do this unto thee. It's going to be a surprise. We know now that the Assyrians who came down upon them came suddenly and took them into captivity. In other words, the people of Israel simply wouldn't believe God. There are no more joyous words or uh, there are awful words in this scripture. Prepare to meet thy God. Joyous words would be those who long for the day. We long for the day when we can meet God. We long for the day when he's coming. But the awful words to those who are not ready. To those who dread it. So in light of this scripture, what kind of meeting could Israel expect? When Syria came down, they didn't take all the people into captivity. Many of them were slain. Uh, This means that they were to meet God in death, which is something that every individual must do. Unless the Lord comes in the rapture, we're all appointed unto death. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. That's the individual message, or that's the message for each individual here today. It's for you and it's for me. Just suppose at this very moment you went into the presence of God. And we may be going there shortly. Who knows? And suppose this life is past. The things that were so important to us down here don't have any importance anymore. Life on earth is over. You're through. You're out of it. Now you're in God's presence. How are you going to stand before God? Perhaps you've lived to please people. You've tried to keep up with the Joneses. Uh, Don't you know that you cannot stand on your own strength in your life? Your own character? You and I have nothing to offer to God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The only way you and I can stand before God is in Christ. He has delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. That you and I might stand before him justified. We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. You know, it was 1741 when um, Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. And with the use of very vivid imagery, he concluded his message. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. God used that sermon in a very powerful awakening of the city of Enfield in New England. Are you prepared to meet your maker? Then call upon your God. Verse 13, the chapter kind of closes with a uh, with a hymn, you could say, describing God, the God Israel would meet. It's one of the most awe-inspiring statements in the Word of God. Verse 13. For lo, he that formeth the mountains, and createth the wind, and declareth unto man what is the thought, and maketh the morning darkness, and treadeth upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. We learn some things about God here. We learn about the uh, omnipotence and the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. He's an omnipotent creator. He had all power. Uh, He was 
It was he who formed the mountains and created the wind. He was omniscient, knowing your thoughts afar off. And omnipresent, he treadeth upon the high places of the earth. No matter where you go, even if you go to the moon, you won't get away from God. Perhaps you've been able to keep up a pretty good front. So your friends and your neighbors think you're just a pretty good person. But in heaven, the psalmist says, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. God knows us. There's no use trying to keep up a front. You might as well go to him and turn yourself in. Now, the police or the sheriff might not be after you this afternoon. But God knows your transgressions. Someone said, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God not only knows us through and through, but he also knew personally the people uh, to whom Amos was speaking. With great intensity of feeling, Amos urges them, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Now I believe we can apply this text in three ways as we close. First of all, prepare to meet God as a challenge. As a challenge, God invites his enemies to prepare to meet him. You know, a boxer will prepare long and hard. He'll fight or he'll train and he'll work out. He'll step then into the ring against the champion. And if you're going to step into the ring with God, you'd better prepare. The prophet may be understood as irony challenging these proud rebels to meet the, uh, in the arms the God whom they have despised and let them prepare to fight it out with him whom they have made their enemy and against whose laws they have continually revolted. So prepare to meet your God as a challenge. Prepare, secondly, to meet God as an invitation. Now an invitation is a blessing. Prepare to meet your God. But it was nothing but a blessing to Adam. Ever since the fall, it is our nature to hide from God. So the call, prepare to meet your God, has a different sense today entirely. Still, we can come to him and we must prepare ourselves. And then prepare to meet your God as a summons. As a summons, we recognize that one day we're all going to stand before God and give an account. Think a while upon whom it is that you have to meet. You're not going to meet the mayor, the sheriff. You're not going to meet a senator or the president. You're going to meet God. God himself. Your God. And that is offended justice. You must meet those laws you have broken whose penalties you have ridiculed, justice righteously indignant with its uh, sword drawn, you must confront, you must meet your God. That is, you must be examined by unblinded omniscience. He who has seen your heart, he has read your thoughts, he has kept track of your affections, he's remembered your idle words, you must meet him. Infinite discernment you must meet. The God who sees through the veil of hypocrisy and all the concealments of formality. There will be no making yourself to be out better than you are. You're going to be just what you are before God.
So I would say, let us also be ready to meet the Lord. Be ready to meet the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for...